0: Welcome to The Make Weeks with Pastor Rob. Let's finish off Romans 9-11. through We've been journeying through it. I think this is going to be the 14th installment of getting through these three chapters, and they are great and deep and amazing chapters. I found it to be a really enriching process, just having to work through something deep enough to talk about it. It's a different experience than just reading over it and kind of thinking your questions to yourself. So I have found it very enriching. There are still... Uh, at least one section where I'm not exactly sure how it all fits together, Uh, but hey, that's life. Uh, There's lots that I think that I've really learned and have come to a deeper understanding of what Paul is doing. Just as a recap, what I think the big idea of this section of scripture is, Paul wants to present them with a theological understanding of their current history, and especially between the Jewish people and the Gentile people and try to answer the question, how come so many Gentiles are coming to Christ in faith and being saved, and relatively few or just a proportion of the first century Jewish people are coming to faith. And the big idea that Paul wants to get his, his readers, the church in Rome, to understand is going to be at the beginning of our passage, um, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the full time of the Gentiles is done. And it really emphasizes God's sovereignty, that God is ruling over this phase of human history. And then he also wants to uphold the trustworthiness of God's word so that no one can say, look, the Jewish people aren't coming or the Israelites aren't coming, therefore God's promises to them have failed. And he's going to say, no, God's word is being upheld. And I think that's why there's so much, so many scripture quotes from Paul in this section. He's proving from scripture that God's word has uh, not failed, but is being upheld, and he also wants to humble human pride and bring us to a place of worshipping God as the sovereign Lord of the universe whom we do not judge and cannot judge and and condemn and criticize to our own uh, hurt so eleven chapter eleven, starting in verse twenty five let me read it to you. This is Paul finishing off this section lest you be wise in your own sight. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. As regard to the Gospels, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regard to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercies shown to you they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, and the wisdom, and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him, that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So, This is what I'm saying is the key to understanding these entire three chapters as Paul has been building the case about this partial hardening. And verse 25 starts off with this warning. Paul wants something to not happen to the Christians in Rome, which he thinks that it could happen to them and probably can happen to any Christian quite easily. He says, I don't want you to be wise in your own eyes, uh, which is great, but also hard. Guess what? I want to be wise in my own eyes. And guess what? You too want to be wise in your own eyes. You want to think, I'm smart. I'm clever. I get it. Other people don't get it. I'm the only one who gets it. People love that kind of stuff when they feel like, I'm the only one in the room who gets this. I'm the only one who knows which horse is going to win the race. You know, I'm the only one who really understands particle physics here. I'm the only one who really gets the gospel. I'm the only one who has a genuine relationship with Jesus through grace. I'm the only one. People love to feel wise in their own eyes. And the problem is, is that the universe is being run by a God who is determined to wipe out human pride and human wisdom apart from God and to exalt God's own wisdom in the world and to show that only God is God and that human beings either come to him and are saved by mercy as we agree with him or or or. Or we're lost, really. And so he's he's working on them. I don't want you to be wise in your own eyes. So to the Jewish people, I don't want you just standing around going, we've got the promises, we've got the background, we've got the patriarchs. He's pointing out, actually, you're not coming in because... By and large, Jewish people want to establish their own righteousness apart from Christ. And then he looks to the Gentiles and says, yeah, there's lots of you coming in right now, but you're just coming in because the Jewish people were being disobedient. It's not because you guys are super wise and super special. You're coming in through faith as a gift. And so don't get wise in your own eyes. And in the last section that we read, he actually warned them saying, um, if you choose to walk in unbelief, you can get broken off even more easily than the Jewish people did. And the Jewish people can get grafted in more easily than you were talking about olive tree um, uh, transplantation. And so he, he confirms to them that all Israel will be saved. And then he reads the Old Testament quotation here, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so Paul sees the Old Testament promises that God will rescue um, Israel. Israel. And how I understand this, you know, do they mean every single Israelite? How I understand this is that Paul is is seeing that there will be a time in human history when Israel en masse, as a nation, turns to Christ. That's part of the promise. That's part of God's plan in Christ, that this deliverer that comes from Zion um, will be a covenant that will take away the sins of the Jewish people, the Israelite people. This is how I understand it. So not necessarily that... Every Jew or every Israelite who ever lived um, is saved. Otherwise, I can't make sense of the Gospels at all because Jesus is talking to Israelite people exclusively and condemning some of them and their leaders and saying, you've rejected me. So I can't make sense of everyone just being on mass throughout all history saved. But I do see that Paul is looking at time, and he's saying there was a time where pretty much it was just Israelites who knew God, and uh, sometimes they had more faithful generations and sometimes less general faithful generations. And now in Christ is this time in human history where just a remnant of Israel is turning to faith in God through Jesus Christ. But the Gentiles, because the Israelites are being unfaithful, the Gentiles are coming in en masse. And then, but that time won't last forever. And there will be a time in human history where the Gentiles stop coming and Israel turns en masse. Or maybe just Israel comes en masse and the Gentile flow slows down. I'm not exactly sure exactly what Paul envisioned here, but he's saying um, there will be a day when Israel is saved in history, when Israel en masse. I don't know if that means every single last one, but like maybe as a nation, as a community, perhaps, I'm not sure. So he says again, as regards to the Gospels, they're enemies of God for your sake, meaning they're rejecting Christ, and so they end up being rejected. But as regards to election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And what that means is that even though the present generation, they're enemies of God, um, God will maintain his covenant faithfulness to Abraham, and he will rescue a generation, um, a nation, um, to Christ. That's how I understand it. And then he humbles them again by saying... um, You were, to the Gentiles, you were one time were disobedient. You didn't didn't come. You didn't obey God's law. You didn't come to to Israel. The Philistines just fought with Israel. You know, the nations around Israel, just a few people would turn to faith, but usually they they tried to conquer Israel, um, and sometimes they succeeded and sometimes they failed. He said, for a long time you were disobedient, and the Jewish people enjoyed uh, being close to God, and now they're disobedient, and you're coming in. And he's saying, whoever is in is in by mercy, not by rights and not by works and not by goodness and not by wisdom, their own human wisdom. They're in by mercy. And then he has this crazy line in verse 32. He says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. And this is one of these lines, again, that really emphasizes the sovereignty and power and control of God, saying God God has decided, as human history goes on, that the Jewish people are going to have a time of disobedience. And the Gentiles are going to have a time of disobedience so that everyone will know whoever does come and is saved, it's by mercy, so that he can have mercy on them. And that concludes the theological arguing, trying to explain what's going on. God's word is being upheld. He, he, He has totally predicted this season, explained this season, and he's also given us promises to know how things will eventually turn out. And then he just turns to worship this God that he has been proclaiming the greatness of. From this vision of the mercies of God, whoever's in in Christ, it's by mercy. Whoever's in Christ, it's by mercy. Gentiles are not natural branches. We don't um, aren't born into a covenant um, by being physical descendants of it, of Abraham or or Jacob. So we're grafted in by mercy, and now we know that it is totally possible for generations of um, people who are physical descendants of Abraham or Israel to have hardened hearts and to not come in. Uh, mo- m- the majority, you know, s- there's a remnant, but the majority. So when people come in, we don't say, oh, yeah, that's just, that's just God is obligated. That You know, God can't, he's, his hands are tied. They look at them, look at what they're doing, they've earned it we look at it and we say, it's just all mercy. It's just all mercy. God's been so merciful through Christ. It's just mercy. Whoever's in, it's by mercy. And so he's, he begins to sing God's praise. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable means in English, like you can't, you can't, you and I aren't competent to criticize. That's what inscrutable means. That we can't criticize. We don't, who, who, how are you going to, you, you're smarter than God, you can pull this off? No. So all we can do is learn and worship. And then he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord and who's been his counselor, who's given him a gift that he might be repaid? The answer is nobody. Nobody's, nobody's taken a heaven elevator and gone up to the sky throne and said, "Um, you missed a spot or, you know, two plus two is four man how'd you get that wrong you know nobody's gone and he does god doesn't come down and say oh man rob i'm just oh, oh man people the choices oh it's so tough what am i going to do oh i don't even know how to oh help me can you give me some ideas let's have a brainstorm sesh okay maybe you get get together with all your pals from university we're gonna have a little brainstorm seshi. we're gonna seshi this out and no, he, no what no never god is beyond uh, he's inscrutable he's beyond our understanding not that we he can't explain himself to us he can but we can't criticize and judge. He's put us in a place um, where we receive mercy and we're here because of mercy. And the only way to come to God is through humble faith. For from him, this is verse 36, and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that is what we're going to say. At the end of time, those of us who are saved through faith uh, in Jesus Christ, that's what we're going to say. We're going to, God is going to, continue to reveal his sovereignty over the world and we will say, wow, this was all from you and through you and back to you. Uh, to you be the glory and we're here by mercy. And so uh, these are amazing passages. I want to encourage you if you've been following along to go back and read these chapters and try to think your way through them with these ideas. that God's word is faithful. God is ruling over hearts, working towards an end of his own devising where he'll prove himself faithful and that uh, people will be bought by the blood of Jesus according to mercy and that his wisdom is beyond human judgment. And then you can read all of Romans, the chapters beforehand, which explain the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, righteousness by faith in him instead of any kind of work, um, the new life um, that uh, conquers the power of sin, the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is our strength and uh, our new mindset in this life. And then you can read the verses afterwards that talk about how to live together, how to reflect a life of jesus in this world with other people with governments um how to deal with other people's levels of faith so i want to encourage you to read these chapters afresh all right i want to just end with uh some thoughts um just from a recent event one of my uh sorry maybe not favorite but a, a, a worship man that i really enjoyed one of their albums and i just met with the lord about um They've come out and kind of said, you know, we don't believe in the God of the Bible anymore. I think they've invented a mother goddess or something of inclusion or something like that. I'm not entirely sure of all the ins and outs. But, um, you know, it just made me think again. And as they presented the story, it has to do with uh, trying to understand suffering in the world. And they they kind of grew up in the church, had an idea about God, went through suffering, rejected that idea about God and started making things up that are different and it just I just want to share a few thoughts about that because this kind of stuff you know I really think about this stuff um, especially if I've really received ministry from someone and then they end up rejecting Christ or rejecting the scriptures so number one is this you might remember the parable of the four soils there's the hardened path there's the rocks there's the weeds and there's the good soils and the Word of God is cast on all of these things and only the good soil bears fruit. And the second kind of soil that Jesus talks about is a, a soil that where the seeds go on rocks and the seed springs up quickly, but then it can't really get a good root. And so it withers. And Jesus explained that there is a kind of person who receives the word of God joyfully, but when persecutions or trials comes, they 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 walk away. And so I need to remind myself when I see this happening, when people leave because of per- hardship, because they don't know what to do with hurting and suffering. Um, Jesus said, "There, there is a kind of person who does this, and he asks each one of us to say, to ask ourselves, are you that kind of person? Is that your plan? That uh, you, you only follow me when things go well, but if a persecution comes up, if a suffering comes up, you're just, your faith is going to die, and you're going to go find another God that you think is going to take care of you better than I do. So that's the first thing. Jesus said that there are people like this the second thing i just want to remind or just ask the question is when it comes to suffering in the world how does rejecting jesus make anything better and there's two reasons i ask that when it when it comes to suffering in the world how does rejecting jesus christ make anything better and the first reason is this let's say you go from um i was a christian and then i became an atheist how does saying there is no God make any of the suffering go away? It does. Does it? Does it make any suffering go away? No. It hasn't changed the world for anybody. If I just ah, uh, there must not be a God because life hurts. Has anybody felt better? No. Have will that empower me to do anything that I couldn't do by faith in Jesus? Like if I decide, oh, I'm going to become a nurse and take care of sick people. Would it? Would it? Does rejecting God make that easier? I don't think so. I'm going to give more money or I'm going to go and take care of the homeless or whatever you decide to do. I'm just going to uh, love my wife and kids and give them the best shot at healthy adulthood. You know, does, does rejecting God make any of that other stuff happen or happen more easily? No, I don't think so. And in fact, you'll find for most of human history that, um, you know, Christianity has really inspired people to acts of service for others. And now it's a 2000 year history. And if you want to, you can find bad stories, but, but seriously, like go through the largest, um, organizations that, um, reach out to the poor, poor kids, poor, poor nations, and they'll probably either be Christian or have Christian roots. Like just, just check it out. Okay. So rejecting Jesus Um, doesn't actually make anybody's life less pain-filled, if that's your idea of evil. Um, Rejecting Jesus doesn't make anybody's life less pain-filled, ultimately. And if it's true that faith in Christ is what rescues us from the wrath of God, then, then if you reject Jesus, then you welcome the wrath of God into your life. And you'll help other people to experience the wrath of God, especially if you go around convincing people to also join you in rejecting Jesus. This is the big thing, okay? If it's true, and I, I believe it is, I know it is, that Jesus Christ really does rescue us from the wrath of God, somewhat in this life. I, I mean somewhat, as in like no Christian is under the wrath of God, but we still have hardships. Um, but we're not promised to be rescued from any kind of pain. Like Jesus even says, no, it's... it's you you have to pick up your cross daily and follow me. You have to pick up this painful instrument of your own torturous death every day to follow me. And Paul says it's through many trials that we enter the kingdom of God. Like the 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 New Testament is in one sense the most depressing religious book in the world because it just keeps saying, It's gonna be hard, you're gonna suffer. It's gonna be hard, you're gonna suffer. It's gonna be hard and you're gonna suffer. It's gonna be hard and you're gonna suffer. It's gonna be why don't you try being cheerful in your suffering? Why don't you try rejoicing in your suffering? Because it's gonna be hard and you're gonna suffer. God is in control. And so this is the call. So, But this is my thing. Like, no, you don't make anybody's life ultimately better. And you don't actually stop the great evils of the world just by rejecting Christ. And the history of the last 100 years has been that when societies have gone atheistic, um, you know, communist Russia, communist China, uh, it, it has been the unleashing of human suffering like we've never seen before, man-made starvation, man-made famines, um, gulags, uh, murder prisons. Uh, It's just, I I was uh, listening to my World War II audiobook the other day, and uh, Mao Zedong, in the Great Leap Forward, engineered a a famine that killed more people than all, all of World War II. More people died in China under this atheistic regime than all the people who were killed in World War II, which is just stunning. Okay. So this is my first point. Like, how does it, how does it make anybody but that person feel better to reject Christ? Is it selfish? I don't know. Jesus said that this is going to happen. Does it actually help? And and this is my other thing. Um, Jesus is the great sufferer. Jesus's life was unpleasant Um, He wasn't, he was royalty, but he was a peasant. He constantly rejected, regularly threatened, consistently misunderstood. And the culmination of his life was uh, a day of torture and then death by suffocation through hanging, through being impaled on a piece of wood while being surrounded by his enemies and mocked to death. So this is, his life was just, he's a man of sorrows and well acquainted with suffering. How... How does he get rejected when people's lives hurt? And I understand pain is really terrible. And I don't think straight when I'm in trouble and in pain. And I can get, you know, mad at God too. Not rightly, but I can get mad and have a what's going on here time. But like, if you just think about it, um, Jesus is the great sufferer and god said he's dealing with sin in jesus. Jesus absorbed the the evils of this world, every kind of evil, accusations and physical pain and death. He absorbed it all and he rose out of the grave to conquer it. But like how how does the computing compute where you, where somebody's saying I can't believe that god exists because of human suffering and you look at Jesus on a cross and the father saying this is what I look like. This is grace as I save people through in this suffering, and this is also holiness, as my son suffers for you, but this is me. I am suffering on the cross. And we look at Jesus' suffering, and we say, my suffering is much more important than your suffering. I'm going to pretend like you don't exist. I'm going to actually put you on trial, and I'm going to condemn you to death, and I'm going to execute your existence by either believing in a different God or believing in no God, because um, I'm hurting. And i this is the thing, and I get it. I get it. We don't necessarily think straight when we're hurting. But if you just can try to think it through, how does crucified Jesus get rejected because of suffering? How does crucified Jesus get rejected because of human sin and evil when he received the totality of human sin and evil? So this is the thing, and and I the reason I'm I you know the reason I'm talking about this I know. I I failed, people fail. I'm not trying to beat anybody up, but I am wanting to wrestle with your mind and just say, like, do you know in your heart of hearts if you're the kind of person who are going to go through something painful and turn to God and say, You're not doing a good enough job, I reject you, I'm out of here. I'm gonna attempt to destroy you by saying you don't exist anymore or choose to make up a different God in my own image. Is that is that in your heart? It's the potential in anybody's heart. And so that's why Jesus told that parable of four soils and he says, you know what, if you're going to be a good soil where the word of God really bears fruit, you're going to need to answer the question about what you're going to what you're going to do through suffering, are you going to turn to me or are you going to reject me? So, it's something to think about and and by the grace of God, I hope that each person who hears this and myself as well learns to suffer with eyes fixed on Jesus, experiencing the joy that can only be found in the Holy Spirit in the midst of trouble, and begin to really believe God when he says that our our momentary trials and our troubles and our sufferings are earning for ourselves a weight of glory that far surpasses it all, and that um, we can rejoice in our sufferings because our sufferings produce perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Uh, we need to, we need these verses because life is hard, even for us in Canada or the U.S., where we ha- actually have the most comfortable lives available to us ever. Between technology and inventions and healthcare, we have the opportunities to live the the most pain free lives possible. And it doesn't keep us from going after God about the pain we do have. So think about it, and I hope you will turn to Christ. And even just ask him, God, I don't know what's coming in the days ahead, but whatever happens, would you keep my heart? And would you help me be a good soil? And may the Lord fulfill that prayer for each one of us.